Praise the Lord. Amen. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6.4. We're going to take this text again. I am um, thankful that we have a group of people here that want to learn. I I think one of the things that differentiates us from a lot of places, it might be this fact might be one of the most um, different parts of our church, is that we intend to provoke thought and study in you. I I know that in the churches that we were acquainted with growing up, there was not really much encouragement toward Bible study. There was a lot of encouragement toward Holy Spirit outpouring, there was a lot of encouragement toward that kind of thing, but not toward studying the scripture and growing and knowing the Lord. And I think God's given us, how many are thankful God gave you an intellect? Do you think God gave you an intellect to not use it or to use it? Now we can't, we have to have the spirit. Pastor preached that a few weeks ago. The spirit of God, we don't do this on our own, but he works with us, with what he has given us. God works within us and provokes us because we have that free will, because we get to choose. So God says, use your heart, soul, everybody say it, mind. Mind. This is in the Shema, actually. So that intellect that God gives you is there intentionally. So I'm going to carry on tonight, kind of do back to back, but I want to keep the thought fresh because I I just, I feel like this um, desire to reestablish and maybe to... um, to, to ingrain in us even further why we believe in the oneness of God, why we believe in that, what, what supports that belief. And I think sometimes we have to understand what the opposite ideas are concerning the Lord so that we can better understand what he is. So that we're making sure we're not thinking inappropriately about God. Everybody say amen. So 6-4, Deuteronomy 6-4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The same passage you could look up in Mark 12, 29, and they asked Jesus, what is the most important commandment? And what does he say? Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4. And so tonight I, I want to make some clarification again about this. Now, I know that uh, I have a lot of information, especially in this kind of a setting. Like I said, it probably is better on a Thursday night, broken up over several weeks, but so many of you teach and do different things. I want to encourage you. We have Chris doing youth in Austin and Heather and um, Sandy are out and Desiree and Isaac are out and Jen and Josh sometimes go out. Oh, are you doing that? I don't know if you're doing that. So yeah, sometimes they go out. So I just thought, you know, we want to make sure that everybody has access so the kids can sleep tonight. Weston's already got us on that. And, uh, and uh, everybody else can uh, pay attention. You got a few minutes to pay attention. Amen? Amen. So I believe this, the Shema is the standard by which we understand the singularity of God. I brought this up, and we'll bring it up again tonight, Um, brought this up last time I spoke, but for us, we cannot hear this Shema Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad, And say, okay, now we're going to take what we understand one to be and we're going to apply it to the Shema. We're going to apply it to the oneness of God. We cannot do that. What we must do is say we have to adjust our understanding of oneness to what God says about himself. Everybody following me? I believe it is the standard. Has anybody thought this, maybe you did this week after I, I spoke this last week, but has anybody ever thought, why does God give us such a description of himself? Anybody ever ask yourself that question? I asked myself that question this week. Why does God give us this description? When they ask Jesus, what is the most important thing to know in order to have relationship with God so that we understand who God is, he says the most important thing that you've got to know is that God is one. What other words could he have used to describe God? Sure, I'm sure you could think of a few right now. I know one of them, the first one that would come to many people's minds, is love. Because that is another description given. God is love. So many people use that description of him today. He could have said a lot of different things. He could have said that he is holy. Is that true of God? 
he could have said that he is our peace. Is that true of God? He could have said that he is our protector. Is that true of God? But why did he say the most important thing, the number one thing you need to know is that God is one? And then that prefaces our understanding of how we are to interact with God. We've got to love that God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then from there, then we're going to learn how to love our neighbor as ourselves. Why is that number one? Why is it not love? Why is it not peace? Why is it not provider? Why is it not protector? All of those things are attributes and characteristics that we come to know of God. How many are thankful that God has shown himself in that way in your life? But yet, Jesus says, listen, there is one thing that trumps all of those. The protos commandment, the most important thing you can know about God is that he is one. To me, the, the question of why he chooses this can be answered simply by us looking at just the first description that I gave you that we also might think about God, which is God is love. So if we take this and we do not understand that God is one, if we remove that God is one and we interject that God is three persons... Let's see the shift in what God is love means now, okay? So, when we look and define God as love, we develop this strange idea according to these three persons. You end up with a big, mean father in heaven, a jovial Jesus who jumps around frivolously. That's what he's depicted at in all of these. I mean, I remember I told dad when we... We saw this thing the other day, but I, I remember when I was young and dad at his office and we were working at the church, the first discipleship go around, he had these movies and I don't know who gave them to him, VHSs, and they were Jesus. I don't remember what they were called, but man, he was a smiley cat. He was just always smiling. So he's, you got the, the God who's mad in heaven and then the son of God comes to earth and he's the loving God. Everybody following me? Am I, am I off? We're not off, right? This is... What's depicted constantly. And uh, the, the father won't be satisfied. There is no satisfaction without this um, recompense being taken out. So he's got to kill someone in order for him to be satisfied with man. Because man has sinned and transgressed against him. And so now Jesus showing how much he loves us gives his life on a cross in order that the Father will be satisfied and that we can then have access to the Father through the love of Jesus Christ. And that really the Father's love in this, he's a really mad guy, but he, he shows us that he loves us by killing his son. Now, how do you get there? You get there by removing the Shema how you get there. All of that is constructed and only able if God is different people. Right. Now, take that same idea of love and confine it to the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now you have the love of Yahweh Echad, the one God, one singular personal God. Wanting to show humanity how much he loves the whole of humanity. Creates humanity in the image that he will become. He sets up a sacrificial lamb system in the Old Testament. To kill an innocent lamb in order to deal with the sins of the people. And in his timing, in order to show his love toward humanity, that Yahweh Echad becomes humanity by being a son. You don't become human without being a son or a daughter. Everybody here tonight, we know that you are human because you are a son or a daughter. So that Yahweh Echad becomes flesh in order to show us that he loves us being born of a woman, and he willingly goes to the cross as a sacrificial lamb to shed his own blood as a sacrificial lamb 
the one God reaching down to humanity in order to bridge the gap that humanity's sin has caused in separation between us and him. That is the gospel of the Shema. The other is the gospel of the Trinitas. Now, it is not possible to get to the first description of love without breaking up the oneness of God. So this is why, just in that example, and I suppose when we look down at holiness, we could see the same thing. We see that we don't have to be holy and that Jesus really is just there to kind of shed his blood across our life and however we live, God is satisfied with it. And that is all provided again by a broken up God. We understand our prayers are, how to, well, we need to know how to pray, but if we've got God broken up into a bunch of pieces, as many of you grew up not knowing which one to pray to, anybody remember that? I don't know who to pray to. Am I supposed to pray to the Holy Spirit? Am I supposed to pray to the Father? Am I supposed to pray to Jesus? And then they say, well, you, you pray to the Spirit, and he talks to Jesus, and Jesus goes to the Father who's constantly making intercession for us. All of that. That misconception is provided by our misunderstanding of the oneness of God. So when Jesus says, listen, there is something you've got to know before you can even begin to understand me. We're going to start with the premise that God is one. And then we're going to understand his love, his peace, his protection, his provision. All of that is going to be understood through this understanding that he is a cod. And if we get, lose sight of him being a cod, then we lose sight of all that would hold together our understanding of every other characteristic of who he is. Everybody following what I'm saying? So you can see clearly that the belief that Yahweh is a cod strips away and changes how we understand who God is. It is fundamental and it is vital. Now, I want to be careful, as I said last week, and I try to say this every time, not to be redundant, but because I don't want people to feel like we are, we are kicking people out who see God in a different light than what we do. So when I say it is vital, I'm not suggesting that people who believe that God is a trinity. I'm not saying that they are not saved. But I am saying that it leads to confusion and misunderstanding about the attributes of God. I do believe ultimately it leads to a weak and powerless church because the power is in Christ. It is in his name. It is in his person that we even know God. And that ability to set free whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so if we do not understand the oneness of God, we strip away the power of the church. We leave the church in confusion as to how we are to even interact with this God. And so I believe it is vital. I'm not judging people to heaven or hell, but for our group, which we know, frankly, is the only people that are really listening to this. But for posterity's sake, we have it recorded. If you don't take notes fast enough, you can go home and listen to it again. But um, I believe it's, it's essential for our understanding of who God is and that relationship. And I believe that the reason why every one of you is here and we see such strength in our families, we see such strength in our children, primarily growing to love the Lord and serving the Lord, is because we have presented them with a clear gospel that Jesus is what they need. He's what they need to look at. He's the fullness. He's all they need in their life. And I believe that clarity brings strength. Amen? Amen. So this can be applied to every, every theological position, every doctrinal statement. We return to this fact that God is a cod. It is the anchor point by which our understanding of God grows. The scripture says that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do you notice there's a lot of people who are trying to grow in the grace and knowledge of God? Anybody see it? I know to us it's, it's the same. But to a lot of other people it's not. That literally Bethel in Reading was talking about they were spiritual mystics and they were seeking an unmediated link 
between God and man. Literally going, all right, we got Jesus and he forgive us of our sin, but now we can get to something altogether different and deeper. But the scripture doesn't instruct us to grow in the grace and knowledge of some God somewhere. It doesn't instruct us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Father, but it does instruct us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of deity, of everything that God is, it dwells in him bodily. So if you get skirting around him and start trying to find father or spirit out there, you're going to find something. But it's going to be difficult for us to define what you found. So we look to Christ. Amen. So I want to I go over a couple of things that bring um, question couple of further things. I did this last week about a cod, but I want to go over a couple of further issues that bring question into what a cod means. Uh, there's been an effort by theologians, which as you probably know, the vast majority of which are Trinitarian because the Catholic Church solved that when they started murdering everybody who wasn't. And so it pushed the, the true church underground. Dad asked this question a long time ago. It makes such perfect sense. Who was it that the Catholics were killing? The heretics. Well, the Catholics are heretics. So probably the guys they're killing would be my best friends. They're the guys I want to know. Now, I, I look up, I actually do Google search sometime, middle, medieval or middle-aged heretics. Now, not that everything they've got is right, because there certainly were some nuts in there too. But the persecution was going on to eliminate any other voice. Now, the majority of scholars today are Trinitarian. And so there's an effort because Ikad is so clear, because it is, it is there, it's the number one commandment. There's an effort to change what that word means. And some theologians now, we talked about that last time, this compound unity, but there's another effort that's gone on, and you might hear this, whether you do or not, I want to strengthen your understanding anyway, and that is to change the word akkad to equal a rank. So they will say that akkad does not mean one in singularity, but it means Number one. Well, that could sound like, okay, I guess, from the outset. You say, well, God is number one. Not real strong. Everybody agree? That's not it. I don't want to build my faith necessarily just on God as number one. Um, so, the essence of the Shema would then read, listen, Israel, the Lord our God is number one when it comes to God's. That's the idea that they've introduced into Ikad. Uh, the, the word then they take, this is, this is an amazing progression where you go. You take then Psalm 91 verse 1, which we all, many of you would know by heart. But that is that he who dwells in the shelter or the secret place of the most high. You know what you get out of that? Number one. You got... Number one person, number two person, number three person. By changing a cod to a ranking system, we have the ability to say, yes, God is number one and the son is number... Anybody ever wonder how they figured that out? I never could figure... I mean, where is that identified for us? It provides for some interesting things. So they use, there's, there's other verses. I, 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 was, <laughs> I, I was chuckling a bit as I was reading those because in all the time I have read, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I never one time thought, man, this means God is number one in rank. I never one time thought that. I thought this was speaking toward his power. To word, but so they take that and, and they use other verses. That there's several of them in, in, in you know, Isaiah and other places where it speaks of God as the Most High. And they use this to establish there is some sort of rank in the heavens. There's a ranking system. And one problem with this sort of thought is that you can't have three co-equals if one of them 
is the most high. Anybody else got a problem with that? I mean, so the, the, the Trinity idea is that there are three co-equal, co-eternal persons. You can't have co-equals if there is a most involved in that. Because that states by itself that there is something that is greater than something else. So this concept was always, uh, will always result in the de-emphasis of Jesus Christ. Always a rank system, a numbering system, where you have the Son as the second person will always result in the de-emphasis of Jesus Christ. For those who believe in eternal sonship, they will always work it into a few different ways, but it places him as a subordinate son. A most high ranking, a number one father ranking, and a number two son ranking, it always places him as a subordinate. Everybody know what subordinate means? It means to be under someone else. And you cannot have co-equals and at the same time have subordination. It's not possible. It makes him a second person. It makes him a created being. Man, I, I don't know. I don't have time to even cover. I was sharing with Dad and Dustin and Rodney this week something the Lord about. I don't have time to go there. But, but the created being thing. I mean, where did Jesus come from in eternity? When he is the eternal son of God, where did he come from? Well, some would say he was a created being. And many Trinitarians are, are pretty fond of going that direction. But you know what that makes you? A Jehovah's Witness. That's what they believe. He was a created being just like we are because it says he's the firstborn of all creation. So he was just born before the rest of us. That's not a God. That's not one. You have another option. He's one of the sons of God. You know what that makes you? A Mormon. See, there's a difficulty when we begin to tweak the meaning. So some want to say, though, that a cod can always be used in this sense, and that rank is always what a cod means. But I want you to consider this then. If Yahweh is number one over the heavenly beings, Zeus is number one over Greek gods, Odin is number one over the Norse gods, Ra is number one over the Egyptian gods, Dagda is number one over the Celtic gods, Anu is number one over the Babylonian gods. If Akkad simply means rank or position, then the Shema is not describing any difference between Yahweh and the pagan pantheons. Do you understand what I'm saying? And what it ultimately does when you remove Akkad and input the Trinity, then it allows for the belief in some like Rick Warren who has even said that those who are seeking Allah are seeking the same God that we seek. It, it opens that possibility if God is just number one in rank, then whoever you are seeking that is number one in rank, that's the same one. And there are a lot of Christians who are becoming of this mindset. Pastor shared about Brother De La Vega and the, and the Bible college that he had kind of liked. And that was one of the things that they agreed to do, to take money from the government, that they would become Chrislam. Have you heard the term Chrislam? It's the bringing together and that really the Muslims Allah is our Jehovah. And that is absolutely not true. And I'll tell you how we know it's not true. Because our Jehovah is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is that Jehovah manifested in the flesh. And unless you receive him, there is no salvation. So ranking number one for a cod creates a tremendous amount of difficulty for anybody who would try to then understand God. And I believe this. Pastor reiterated it. I said it last Sunday night, and I want to say it again. I believe that your, your eternal destiny is not determined by your forgiveness of sin, but I believe that your eternal destiny is determined by how you view and relate with Christ. 
I said this weeks and weeks ago. You, you know how all of our thoughts kind of compound and go together. But several weeks ago when I was looking at what the, what the um, apostles preached in the book of Acts, they never got up and preached Jesus' sin sacrifice. They always preached him as the Lord of glory in every message through the book of Acts. Why? Because it is not essential for you that you are forgiven of your sin. You can be forgiven. Ask God to forgive you. I believe he forgives you right now. That does not make you born again. What makes you born again is receiving the ikad of God, the oneness of Christ, his spirit into your life. That's what makes you heaven bound. That eternal, that determines your eternal future. You say, well, what about our sin? Then we, we can have sin. No, no, no. When you find out who Jesus is, then he cleanses you of your sin and makes you righteous because that's the part that we really need. I don't just need forgiveness. I need his righteousness, which is provided by his Spirit working in me. So it is in my understanding of who he is that my salvation is found. It is that grace that he reveals himself to us. It is that grace that he calls us. It's not our works. It's not, it's not that we logically even figured it out. But the point being, you, if you are forgiven but you never accept who Jesus really is, then really you're not on your way to heaven. And I know that might sit wrong with people. It sits wrong with so much of the American gospel where we try to get people to re repeat prayers and, and emotionally receive Christ. And, and I mean, we, we could do plays, we can do skits, we can tell stories, and, and we can do all of this. But ultimately, when I look at the early church and I look at how it was built and what they preached, I don't see any of that. I don't see any effort of trying to sugarcoat it or make it softer or easier, but I see this constant push and, and surge in trying to reveal who Jesus is, which is what I believe that our church should be doing. It's what we need to, what we need to set our hearts toward. Shema Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad differentiates Yahweh from every other God and identifies him in a singular capacity unlike any other supposed Godhead. We cannot allow him to be divided into rank. The interjection of plurality into a cod is done in an effort to allow for a three-person Godhead, a trinity. This same thought is carried over into the word Elohim. Anybody heard the word Elohim? It is a word that is not frequently used in the Old Testament, but it is the plural form of, of the word El, which is another uh, name, I guess we would say, of God, a description of God. It's the plural form. In Hebrew, the I am on the end indicates a plural like an S does in our language. When we put an S on the end of something, it indicates a plurality, a number of things. However, Language is a tricky thing. Sometimes we come across a word in English, and there are multiple of them, where the S does not mean plural. Let me give you an example. News. When we say news, that does not mean plural. Even though it ends in an S. And so immediately, because they see I am on the end of Elohim, Elohim then they say, well, this is a plurality. See, this, this proves the plurality of God. But it's, it's the same thing in Hebrew. Without going into you know, deep, I don't think any of us want to get into a linguistics class here tonight. But without going into deep, um, you know, uh, diving deep into that subject, let, let me just read to you a few excerpts of Trinitarian scholars. I just got it like, let me see, I got three or four, I think. Here we go. Elohim, though plural in form, is seldom used in the Old Testament, such as gods. Even a single heathen god can be designated with a plural Elohim. In Israel, the plural is understood as the plural of fullness. God is the God who really and in the fullest sense of the word is God. So this is the New International Dictionary of the New Testament Theology, Volume 2. You can find it. So if Jehovah is a plurality, 
meaning multiple, then so is Dagon, so is Chemosh, so is Baal, and so is Moloch. Because all of them have been described within the Old Testament as Elohim. But there's not a single scholar who would look at Dagon and say he is three persons. Not one. Because they just would understand it to be a plural. It's not a definite. This is why we don't use El as the name of God. It defines what is supposed God, a deity. And that's why we don't see that used all the time in our language. So let me read you another one. I hope these don't just put you to sleep. But I just thought they were really interesting. Elohim, the ordinary Hebrew name for God, a plural word of doubtful origin and meaning. It is used as an ordinary plural of heathen gods or supernatural beings or even of earthly judges. But when used of the one God, it takes a singular verb. As so used, it has been thought to be a relic of prehistoric polytheism, but more probably it is the plural of majesty, such as is common in the Hebrew or else it denotes that the fullness of that the fullness of God. That is Hastings Bible Dictionary. If we conclude that Elohim is in fact a numerical plural, then we have to, everybody listen, I know that is hard to follow sometimes. If we conclude that Elohim is a numerical plural, then it must be translated as God's. That's all it can be. It cannot be a numerical plural and be translated as ikad, as one or as God. It is impossible. But remember what I said, and I had a quote, but I took it off because I already got too many quotes. They're hard to follow. What I said last week is that, uh, that it, is, um, it is used when we see a plural verb or noun with it, that's where we see plurality. So in the sense of one herd, the herd is one, but there's a lot of cows because herd is plural, but one remains singular. God is one. And if Elohim is attached to God, it still remains singular. God does not become plural because somebody calls him Elohim. Everybody understand what I'm saying? Let me read you just one more. Maybe it's two. The first word for God in the Old Testament is Elohim. It is also the most generic and least specific in significance. Thus, it would correspond to theos in the Greek or to God or to deity in the English. Unlike Jehovah, Elohim can be used for pagan gods. Some Christians have explained the plural as an anticipation of the Trinity. But again... No one in the Old Old Testament times could have developed Trinitarian ideas from this word alone. The plural form is better understood as indicating a plentitude of power. Though the entomology is obscure, the word may have come from the root meaning strong. This was Gordon H. Clark in Wycliffe Dictionary of Theology. Those three quotes that I read you are not given by oneness sympathetic people. Those three quotes are given by honest Trinitarian scholars. No one with honesty can interject a plurality to God in the Old Testament. Now, Brother Leonard came up to me last uh, Sunday night after I got done. He said, that is exactly right on. And I have to give him some, some deeper credence in this because he's been involved in this Jew, uh, Hebrew, he reads the Hebrew scripture. He likes to, to work there. And we understand very clearly, nobody is going to go to the Old Testament and prove a trinity. It's not there. But I got news for you. Nobody is also going to go to the New Testament and prove trinity because it's also not there. You know where you're going to have to go? 250 years after the apostles. You're going to have to go 200 plus years after the scripture was, was uh, given, after they wrote the letters to the Romans and to all these places. And you're going to have to infer and imply back upon the text things that guys 250 years later say, well, this is actually what these guys meant. When in truth, I just think that God makes it pretty clear. 
We're not, God's not struggling with a multiple personality disorder. God's not struggling to know who he is. God's not struggling to figure out how to relate to himself. God is one. He understands who he is and he tells us who he is so we can understand who he is. And again, we have to adjust accordingly. I could go on, but I think it is sufficient to see that even those who believe in the Trinity would discourage the introducing of a plurality into God because it only produces polytheism. All that ever comes out of plurality is cults. It's all that ever comes out of it. The Mormons took Trinitarian theology and produced Mormonism. The Jehovah's Witnesses took Trinitarian theology and produced Jehovah's Witness theology. It's where it come from. It didn't just originate out on its own, but it originated in the possibility, in the petri dish of theological lab, that if you've got God broken down into these parts, then we can scramble the DNA and we can make all kinds of gods out of this one. There is one more objection to a cod. Um, that I want to cover and then I'm done tonight, given by those who want to reduce the oneness of God. Trinitarian scholars argue that God, if God meant singular one in the Shema, then he would have used the word yakid because they say that this word actually means one. Yakid, it would be Y-A-C-H-I-D if you were kind of translating it into English. It is used 12 times in the Old Testament, only 12, which certainly is not nearly enough to speak of the oneness of God, but it's used 12 times. And the first use produces a death knell in the coffin of this thought. You can go to Genesis chapter 22, and, or sorry, Genesis chapter 2, verses, uh, verses 2, verses 12, and verses 16. And you're going to hear where God tells Abraham to take thy son, thy only, everybody say only, only son, Yaqid. That's the word, only son. Anybody see a problem? Isaac is not Abraham's only son. Ishmael is also a son. So the idea that if God really meant he was one, he would have used a totally different word that means, no, 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 this word doesn't mean one at all. This word actually, and now I don't know there's you know, argument over what kind of it means, but I would reduce this word probably simply, the most simplified form to, to mean only, which is where we see this word only child. So uh, let, me, let me break it down for you. This word is used eight times to describe a unique or only child. Eight of the twelve. Two times to describe being alone or abandoned. And two times about being distressed or an abandoned one. Any of those sound like we would describe God in that way? No. No, you might describe Jesus as being the Yaquid of the Father. Yes, the only Son. The only begotten. That would be an appropriate term. But when we look at God in whole, He is not abandoned. He's not distressed. He's not an only son. He's not an only child. So in every single time this word is used, it would never, in the, in the usage within the Old Testament, never would have fit who God is. What does describe our God is a God. That's what does describe our God. The singular oneness of the self-sufficient I am that I am. The self-existent one who has no plurality of persons, lack of power, or need for another. That's what describes our God. How we try to understand him is our problem, not his. How we try to relate to him is our problem, not his. I have often said it in this way. I believe in Father. I believe in Son, and I believe in Spirit. I believe in God as Father. I believe in God as Son, and I believe in God as Spirit. In relationship to me. That's how God is those things. God is not Father, Son, and Spirit in relationship to himself. That would create a plurality of persons and schizophrenia. 
And relationship, I'm telling you, anybody tries to tell you you need to figure out how to have a relationship with the other parts of you, you need to run. That is never going to lead you to soundness of mind or oneness. And so God in the same way, God is simply Father, Son, and Spirit in relationship to me. He is Father in creation. He is Son and He is manifested in that way. And I can touch Him because He became Son. That's how I know Him. Because He's invisible. And now His Spirit lives within me. And I interact with God through the Spirit. But that same Spirit is identified by Paul. It says if the Spirit that lives in you, the same Spirit that was in Christ, then it will also quicken your mortal body. So what is the Holy Spirit if it's not the Spirit of Christ? And the angel tells Mary in the beginning, he says, this which is begotten in you is begotten by the Holy Spirit. Oh, because the, the Trinitarian shield says the Father and the Spirit are not the same. The Spirit is not the Father, but the angel told Mary he is. So when we simplify, I want to close with a few verses. Well, let me, let me help you in a, in a couple of things. For you younger, um, younger adults, maybe, maybe even you older adults who are not, haven't studied as much on the subject. Listen, I'm not trying to make it complex for you. I'm not trying to give you a bunch of stuff that you've got to go home and know. You may not even understand all of that, what I'm saying or any of what I'm saying. My point is not that you have to understand all this. My point is you need to just simply know this. God is one. That's all you need to know. For those who want to dive in deeper and dig in deeper, I'm trying to give you reason to back up that. But all you need to know is God is one. All you need to know is Jesus is that one. All you need to know is that is Emmanuel, God with us. All you need to know is that a son will be born to you, and that one is going to be called the Everlasting Father. He is the Mighty God. That's all you need to know. You don't have to understand all the, all the depths. And, and frankly, when I, when I sit down to do this, I, I kind of, you know, in some sense, I don't really like to use the term, but arguing with the Lord. This Lord, it kind of feels, I don't know, just kind of dry and heavy. And, and if it's so simple, why do we even have to go through that? Because of so much has been interjected to make it complex. All that I went through, now uh, maybe I'll take it this way. How many of you with a show of hands got everything I just said about Yaquid and uh, the ranking system? Right, kind of. Not very many. And that's exactly the problem. Because we've made it so complex that even the intelligent can't figure it out. But the scripture says that the, the gospel is so simple that even a fool can't err therein. So we're having to deconstruct all that's been constructed in order to simplify and point you to the one that is your salvation, to the one that is the manifestation of our God. And so when you walk out of here tonight, don't walk out of here frustrated. Don't walk out of here feeling like you're stupid because you don't know this or, man, I should have known. No, walk out of here with the confidence that all you need to know is how to call upon the name of the Lord because the scripture says those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When you walk out of here tonight, don't worry about how you need to speak in tongues or how you need to uh, have some Holy Spirit manifestation. What you need to worry about is allowing your temple, preparing it to be a residence for the Spirit of Christ to dwell within you and empower you to live a godly life. That's what you need to know. So the more that we strip away, the more that it becomes clear. I just want to close. I want you to open to the book of Isaiah. Start in the 42nd chapter, and I just want to read through a few verses. They're going to be in order here for you. So you won't have to do a lot of, you won't have to do any book turning. I just want to read a few verses in Isaiah about what God thinks about himself. Do you think if God says something about himself that we should believe that? I think we should. So if God says these things, then I think they're important for you to, for you to know. So Isaiah 42 and 8. I want you to get there if you can, and I don't know, you guys are able to, good, pull them up if you don't have a Bible. I want you to see them. Now, as we read this, here's what we do. Do not interject theology into this. Don't interject 
whatever you, don't interject everything that pastor's been teaching us for 25 years. Take it for what it is. I just want you to read it and hear it. What does God say in describing himself and who he is? Verse eight, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Look at 43 and verse 10. Next chapter over. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I am the Lord. I, even I am the Lord. And beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved and I have skewed and, or showed. And when there was no strange God among you, therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Look at chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Let me stop there for a second. I said don't interject theology, but I just want to ask you a question. Do we think there are two different people speaking right now? Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. And beside me, there is no God. Look at verse 8. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have I not told thee that from that time, and have I declared it? You are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Look at verse 24 in that same chapter. Thus says the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. Now, I want to pause there for a second. Again, I ask you not to interject theology. Now, I'm going to tell you why. Because what we find is we see all the Trinitarians go to John 1, and they say everything that was formed was formed by Jesus, the Word. But we got a problem here. Because God said, I did it myself. I didn't have anybody help me. If he meant anything else, you know what he would have said? I formed the earth through my Son. I formed the earth through my word. You know how you get there is by adding all this theology into this. But this is very simple. We see the description of Savior. We see the description of Redeemer. We see the, uh, the re description of Creator. We see all of these descriptions and they are ascribed to the Echad, one God. There is no plurality in any of these verses. Uh, look at chapter 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. There's no room for multiple people here. I gird thee, though thou hast not known me. Verse 6. That they may know from the rising of the sun from the west, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Look at verse 21. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? And who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me. A just God and Savior. There is none beside me. Look at verse 46, chapter 46 and verse 9, last verse. Remember the former things of old. For I am God. There is none else. I am God. And there is none like me. Now, you should, you should go home and read through those chapters in whole. You just don't have time to do all of that. And what you're going to see really, really clearly is there is absolutely 
no plurality. None. God is pouring out his heart toward Israel. The prophet is writing down what God says and what is important. And God is over and over and over and over saying to them, Listen, I am the one who's going to be your redeemer. I am the one who's going to be your savior. I'm the one who formed you. I'm the one who knew you before you were even in your mother's womb. All of that is coming from this ekad. And if God wanted Israel to understand him in a plurality, he certainly would have made it clear. But he did not ever speak of himself in that light. And I want you to know tonight, as you go home this week, read those, just those few chapters. Just read through there. And you're going to be blown away because you cannot possibly read through those with your eyes open and see anything but the singularity of God working in his people trying to reveal himself. Talking about what he's going to do. Talking about what he's already done. It is such a beautiful picture of who God is. This is the foundation upon which we are to view God. That right there. The, the, the scripture is described, the Old Testament is described as the schoolmaster. It's the one who brings us to school. Dad has said this many times and I'm, I use a lot of what he says because it's the foundation upon which I'm building my understanding. But it's not, it's not the teacher itself, it's the bus driver in our time. It's the one who gathers up the kids and brings them right up to where they can learn. And so when we think about all of this Old Testament, it is the foundation upon which the Jews are to understand Christ, to understand who is coming, to understand who God is. God has made it clear so that when Jesus comes, but their eyes are blinded. It's not that God decided to do something different. It's that their eyes are blinded so that they would not see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And the scripture says that to this day, people's eyes are being blinded. In America, people's eyes aren't being blinded to the fact that they are sinners. People's eyes are being blinded to the ikad of God. Teach it to your children. Write it upon the doorposts and upon the headpost. Recite it. Let it become ingrained in who you are. And I really believe that through that, then God is going to help develop your relationship with him on the simple fact that he is one. Amen. Amen. Dad, why don't you come and close us out?